0: How many know how easy it is to slip off the path? That's the point of Hebrews. There's this little congregation of Hebrew believers. And for some reason, they have become distracted. They're in danger of, in the writer's words, falling away, drifting. something that is common to every Christian in every generation of the church. He commends them later on, we'll read this later on. He commends them for their early zeal and steadfastness. But something has happened. Somehow their enthusiasm, somehow their zeal, their integrity in the faith has diminished. Something something has happened to them. I think what has happened is that they have become self-absorbed, self-focused. Is that easy to do? It's it's, I mean, you're walking along and all of a sudden something says, Look at you. I mean, you're doing real good. You look at you. Oh, yeah, me, yeah. And I would, I would suggest that the minute, the, the, the instant we look at ourselves, our flesh is in the driver's seat, I'm on the throne. I give the world and the devil opportunity. <laughs> Do you know the far too much credit is given to the devil? He has no opportunity except the opportunity we give him. Are you aware of that? A lot of people run around rebuking the devil, rebuking the devil. They ought to be rebuking themselves. <laughs> Don't give him a foothold. Don't give him a place. When you're focused on yourself, you also are wide open now for the world to seduce you, aren't you? Compounding the problem, causing you to to drift further away and to turn your affections from him to whatever has caught your eye, whatever has turned your head. Whatever at that moment seems to be most attractive, most appealing, most alluring. Isn't trouble inevitable? Isn't it? Difficulty's inevitable. Uh, I mean, we typically wanna live lives that are free of trouble, right? We say, oh God, protect me from this, protect me from that, protect me from this. When in fact, we have to understand that difficulty, trials, tribulations, struggle, problems are inevitable. The challenge is for us to keep Our vision and keep our focus on Christ. Because the struggle, the trial, the difficulty can very quickly and very powerfully turn our head and make us focus on it. Once I'm focused on that, whatever it is, I'm dead in the water. Am I making sense? Once I'm dead in the water, though I may know up here and agree that Jesus is my Savior and my very present help in trouble, I won't know the reality and experience the reality of Him being my very present help in trouble. He's writing to these people to stir them up Again, to a passion and commitment to Jesus Christ. They've had their heads turned. They have experienced difficulty and trial. And in the midst of it, rather than clinging to Christ, rather than holding on, rather than putting their life in His hands and risking all with Him, they're running for safety to that which cannot provide safety. All the old rituals, all the old patterns, all the old symbols of Judaism. He says to them over and over, in effect, that's all obsolete. That cannot help you. It's empty. It's only a shadow of what's real. Is a shadow substantial? Is it substantial? Is there a lot of substance to a shadow? No. Nothing. There's nothing to a shadow. There's no depth to it. There's no substance to it. You can't pick it up and grab it and feel it. It's elusive. It's a shadow. But it's a shadow of what? Something that is really real. They're focusing on the shadow. And he's saying, focus on that which is real. We, in our society today, and it's so typically American, though it was exported to us from Europe because the Europeans wouldn't buy into it. <laughs> Americans are so gullible, they'll buy into anything. <laughs> we are. Because so many times we don't think. We're just into trends. But we're, we, we bought into this whole self-movement. Self-esteem. Self-worth. Self-affectation. We just bought into it wholesale. Sounds good. Well, shouldn't I feel good about myself? No. Why shouldn't I feel good about myself? Don't we try to encourage each other? Ah, there's a difference. I want to encourage you, but I don't want you to focus on yourself. I want to encourage you, and I want want you to find strength in your relationship with Jesus, not your relationship with yourself. God never made us to be introspective. Do you know that? it's not very long and you start looking at yourself you get depressed. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> Who's ever had a bad hair day? <laughs> I'm serious. We joke about a bad hair day. You have a bad hair day. Your whole day is ruined. All you can think about is your hair and how you look. You cannot function. Isn't that true? Focus on ourselves. <laughs> God says, go get the get the focus off of yourself. Yeah, but you don't know my trouble. You don't know the trials and the struggles I'm going through. You don't know my trials and struggles. I got them in spades. And I too must learn to, in the face of all the things that are afflicting my life. I mean, you think people talk about you. You guys go home and have me for lunch. I know that. But you know, I'm not going to let that deter me. I'm not going to let that deter me. My eyes are on Christ. I do not want to drift from the faith. I do not want to fall away. I, don't, I know a pastor right now who's, who's been so, so attacked, who's been so blown away, who's been so beat up by the church, that he's quitting the ministry. He's just blown away. Now, part of it is his fault. He's been absorbed in some things and, and, and not sinful things, but I mean things that he just made a cause and he set himself up. He set himself up in a very real sense. And though he knows exactly what I'm saying this morning about keeping a focus on Christ, though he knows that, he has himself lost that focus. Because he's been so absorbed in these other things. It can happen to any of us. How do we stay the course? How do these people stay the course? There's only one way. There's only one way. An absolute commitment to follow Jesus. No matter what. He says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, if this is what you're setting out to do, if you understand who I am and what I offer, then this is how you've got to do it. Every day. The first thing is you must deny yourself. You must deny yourself. You must be able to say no to yourself. When you want what you want, no. No. I want what you want. Now, my will, your will be done. I've got to learn to be willing. Now, some of say, I'm willing. Well, why don't you do it? Well, I guess I'm not really willing. No, you're not. You're just willing to be willing. <laughs> That's a start. You can be willing to be willing, but you've got to move to be willing so that you actually do it. There are far too many Christians who are discouraged And defeated. They're discouraged and defeated. Far too many Christians who come to church, maybe read their Bible. (coughs) Far too many Christians who do not pray. I mean, do not pray. They do not pray. Because they don't believe. They don't believe. If we really believed If we really believed, we'd be there. We'd be there. But there's far too many of us who are going through the motions. And the result is that we're, we're drifting. We become focused on ourselves. All of our prayers are me prayers. Bless me, bless me, bless me. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus said you could pray those prayers. But all of them shouldn't be that. God bless you. It's okay for me to do that. Hebrews is a very, very relevant book for us. It's a relevant book for every generation of the church because it speaks to these fundamental issues. I would submit to you, we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. We cannot allow ourselves to be lulled into, into a, a false sense of comfort that everything's okay. Okay? Do we, do we judge our Christian walk by looking around at other Christians and see how they're doing? Say, so, well, I'm doing pretty good. Compared <laughs> to you guys. We should never judge our Christian life based on each other, right? We should judge it based on whom? Christ. He's our example. He's our example. If you're going to follow another believer, do as Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. I mean, if you're going to look to other Christians, man, look to those Christians who are on fire and who are serious about their faith and who are pressing on in the kingdom and make yourself follow them. But only as they follow Christ. I'm saying all this and I'm not saying anything new, am I? This is all fundamental 101. This is Christianity 101, right? But again, I want to rehearse this. I, I was stirred this week. I was reminded this week. I was shocked this week again by something somebody said. They didn't realize they said it to me. We need a reminder. So I'm reminding. Now all of that to say this. As we look through chapter 8, this morning, you've got to bear in mind, you've got to bear in mind, do I really believe in Jesus? And we'll work that out as we go, and you'll, you'll see what I'm, I'm talking about. Now, I had anticipated early in the week of doing the entire 8th chapter. I looked at it, read it, Thought pff, thirteen verses we can bang these out one weekend. And then I started to study. We're going to do verse one. I had every earnest desire to do the entire eighth chapter. See, because I want to be in chapter eleven for Christmas. I want to. I want to. I want I just. I can hardly wait to see what God has. In chapter 11 of Hebrews at Christmas. That's my goal. Now he may certainly change that, of course. But I'm kind of trying to plan ahead here. Anyway, read with me chapter 8, book of Hebrews. We're going to read through the chapter. We're going to, it'll take us about three weeks to get through it. This week we'll do verse 1. Next week we'll do verses probably 2 through 5. And then the following week we'll do the balance of the chapter, I think. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said... The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Now, the bulk of the chapter and the succeeding chapter is devoted to this new covenant. And we're going to get into that in due time. But I want to talk about two more, this week and next week, two more, two more things that, that point up that Jesus is supreme. He is the greatest. Now remember, this is key for these Hebrews to grasp. He's offering testimony after testimony after testimony to reaffirm and to build their confidence, take away every reason, every argument they might have against Jesus. And this, again, is helpful for us. We can have every confidence in Jesus because of who he is and what we're taught in this particular book. First of all, I want to just rehearse real quickly with you. I want to go back and and review six elements of the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. It's important for us to have a grasp of these fundamentals, because we see how Jesus, a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, is greater than the Levites. What qualifies? What qualities are there attributed to his priesthood? There's six of them. Let me just run down real quickly with you. The writer has described this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, first of all, as one that is forever. Without beginning, without end. Now, as, as, as I'm rehearsing these, and some of you are writing down on your notes and filling in the blanks there, I want you to be thinking ahead because I want you to contemplate this week these characteristics. How, does, how do each of these characteristics reflect to my life? What do they mean to me personally? Okay? This is very more important. The second is that it was confirmed by an oath. The Levitical priesthood was not confirmed with an oath. But God swore an oath with respect to this priesthood. Thirdly, this priesthood was founded on personal greatness. In other words, by the power, on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, right? Not on the basis of ceremony, not on the basis of ancestry like the Levites fourthly this particular priesthood could not be touched by death death could not affect it remember the Levitical priesthood was affected by death limited fifth it was a priesthood that was able to offer a sacrifice that never needed to be repeated one sacrifice for all as opposed to the continuing sacrifices of the Levites. And lastly, this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek was so pure that it doesn't need to offer sacrifice for its own sins. It is so pure. Now, I'm I'm saying these things, I'm I'm reminding you of these things because it bears on what he says in verse 1. When he says, the point of what we are saying. So the point of all of this. We remember this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. We contrast it with the Levitical priesthood. We see the the vast difference between the two. He says, the point of what we are saying is this. That Jesus is a priest just like that. That's the point he's driving at. It's kind of a summary statement. Jesus is a priest just like that. And therein you find the application. If Jesus fulfills his priesthood, what does it mean to me? How does it reflect back to me? Now let's look at the first of these two. He's going to say two more things about Jesus. I'm going to look at the first one with you this morning. The first one is found in verse 1. And it it goes thusly. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. How many knew that? Say, I knew that. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The writer is telling his little congregation there can be no greater honor accorded to anyone than the honor of sitting down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's saying, in effect, do you see how superior now Jesus, our high priest, is? Nobody else has been accorded this honor. Now, he's saying one other thing, too, and this is significant. He's preparing them. Now, if you read on ahead, see, he's introduced this concept of a shadow. Remember that reading that with me in the passage? He's introduced this concept of a shadow, and he's really going to begin to work that concept Of the heavenly things being superior to the earthly things. The heavenly is better than the earthly. Ooh, somebody write that down. That's good. (laughs) Heavenly is better than earthly. Heavenly is better than earthly. Somebody said, oh, you're so heavenly bound, you're no earthly good. (laughs) I don't think that's true. I think people who are really heavenly bound are really some earthly good. (laughs) They have been focused on and they have been retreating to and tempted to retreat to back to all of the truth, all of the issues of Judaism. The priesthood, the sacrifices, the temple... Et cetera, et cetera. All the rituals that they've known. All that has, has, has meant comfort. All that they've known from their past. Man, when you're called to walk by faith, it gets scary, doesn't it? When all you have to do is trust in an invisible God named Jesus, and all of your circumstances are screaming out saying, No way, you're going down. Man, just to stand there takes everything, doesn't it? It takes more than everything. You don't have the resources to stand there. That's why you've got to have his resources to stand there. It's so easy to run. It's so easy to seek refuge. It is so easy to seek help in that which is already known and which we have history with. Oh, gosh. Rather than stand out there Excuse the expression, buck naked in faith. Standing there saying, Okay, God, here I am. I've done everything I know how to do, and nothing's breaking. I'm dependent on you. I trust you. And man, you take the fire, you absorb the heat, you just absorb it. Because down deep inside, you're learning to trust Him. We don't lean on rituals. We don't go back to the drugs or the alcohol or to the sex or to the pornography or to the food or to the whatever it is that we have drawn comfort from and solace in. We stand there and say, okay, here we go. Lord, it's you and me. It's you and me. We're not going to focus on the earthly. We're focusing on the heavenly. The heavenly is better than the earthly. Say that with me. The heavenly is better than the earthly. Why is the heavenly better? Because the heavenly is going to last. This stuff's going to pass away. This stuff's going to pass away. But the heavenly is going to last. It's more real than what you can see and touch and feel. That which you cannot see touch and feel is more real than that which you can see touch and feel. Grab that one. The question is, do I believe it? And am I willing to invest my life in that which I cannot see, touch, and feel, that which I just read about and other people tell me about? Am I willing to invest myself there or am I going to look back here and invest myself in that which I can see, touch, and feel and give myself comfort? The heavenly. He's saying Jesus is seated in heaven heavenward is where we look. Paul says that, doesn't he, Colossians? He says, "Set set your mind, set your heart on heavenly things, not on the earthly things. Jesus, what in heaven? Sat down. Just look at the top of your page. He sat down. He sat down. What significance is there in that? Well, we know, first of all, that the Levitical priests never sat down. They never sat down. Flip the page, chapter 10, verse 11. Read verse 11 with me. Day after day, every priest stands. There you go and performs his religious duties again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin what's he saying? he said here's this guy standing day after day after day offering ineffective sacrifices you get the picture of a guy on 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 an assembly line same repetitive task over and over and over isn't that the joy of our life? Same repetitive task. Every day, every day, every day. Doing the same thing every day, every day. Boring. You would think that at some point it would dawn on one of these priests to think, you know, there's got to be a better way. I mean, don't, don't we come to that conclusion sometime? You know, we, we get ourselves in these, in these modes and we think, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. You'd think one of those priests would go, there's got to be a better way. I mean, he's looking down, he looks down at that, that, that assembly line of sacrifice, is still still coming. They're, it's not running out. They couldn't sit down, they could never rest. A priest's job was never done because the sacrifices he offered were never permanently effective. His job was never done. He had to repeat those sacrifices over and over and over. In his ministering at the altar in the temple, the priest never rested because he was never through. He was never through. Don't we look forward to a closure? Don't we look forward to conclusion? Don't we look forward to a job being done? These guys had to be the most frustrated people in the whole world. They would say, oh, it's you again. What's oh, you again. Can you imagine? You think, oh my gosh. There was no place provided for them in the tabernacle in the wilderness, or in when the temple was finally built, there was no place provided in either place for the priest to sit down. There was no seat. I take that back. There was one seat. What was that seat? The mercy seat. Could the priest sit on the mercy seat? (laughs) No, man, that was God's throne. (laughs) He'd probably get struck dead. The mercy seat, remember, represented God's throne. That was in in the wilderness when God's presence would dwell with his people. And uh, we would see that his glory would come down in the holy of holies there and, and lie just above the mercy seat. The place of mercy. So the priest couldn't sit down. But when Jesus offered his sacrifice, however, he was able to sit down because his work was done. His work was done. In fact, among his last words on the cross was this statement It is finished. Boy, he meant it. It is finished. I've done it all. The work is finished. One final sacrifice. A better way has been found. He had accomplished in one glorious act what all the priests of all the old covenant had not accomplished, nor could they ever accomplish. And that is the forgiveness of men's sins and their reconciliation to God. Forgiveness of their sins. Isn't it glorious to know that all of your sins, all of your sins can be forgiven? Everything you've ever done, whether you can do something about it or not now, it has been forgiven. It has been washed clean. All the sins that you commit in the future have already been forgiven. It is finished. Isn't that glorious? See, when you you begin to grasp the magnitude of that, it lifts a weight off of you. And you begin to experience freedom, joy, peace. Because you also have, along with those forgiveness of sins, you have reconciliation with God. God's not mad at me. God's not mad at me. Brown at me. His guns of judgment are not trained on my life. In that one great glorious act of Jesus on the cross, he accomplished what the priest could never accomplish, the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with God. His work was done. He had accomplished all that needs to be done. Nothing can be added to his work on the cross. That's why he says it's finished, period. It's finished. And yet, we still find ourselves trying to add to his work. I know he died for me. I know that I know that I'm saved. I know that my sins are forgiven. I know that I have fellowship. I know that God loves me. But I still think I need to do something. I mean, we see part of our dilemma is we still live in this earth suit. This and it's still laden with sin. It's still imperfect. It still can be seduced. It still can be drawn away. Sometimes we're seduced by, by spiritual kinds of things. We're seduced by, by the Bible. Do you know that? Who's ever been seduced by the Bible? A couple of you know what I'm talking about. I read the Bible to know about God. I read the Bible to get my quota in. I read the Bible because I'm supposed to. I don't read the Bible because I want to and I love it. I love him, but I just want to know him, fellowship with him. Is there a subtle difference there? So you can be seduced? But, you see, what happens is I think that we, at least I, I experienced this in my life, I think, I want God to do something for me, so I've got to trade something. I've got to trade some good works. I've got to trade some time in the Bible, certainly. I've got to pray. I've got to do religious stuff. Because if I don't do it, he's not going to give me what I want. In other words, I've got to accrue some heavenly brownie points. (laughs) Am I the only one? Is it easy to slip into that mode? I mean, even even when you know better, even when you know better, you go... And then, and then, the very thought of doing all that is exhausting, and so we generally choose not to even do it. Can anybody relate to this? Oh my. I want you ask yourself this question? Write this question down. I want you to think about this, I want you to pray about this all week. All week. Here it is. Ask yourself. Is my Christianity, is my faith, is my Christian life, is it refreshing, invigorating, and inviting? Is my life, as a result of my faith, is my Christian life, am I refreshed? Am I invigorated? Is my life inviting to others? Or is my Christianity dull, boring, defeating, discouraging exhausting. Now you can, you can have an on fire Christian life and still be exhausted. Jesus did, didn't he? So when I say exhausting, that last word I meant, I meant by, by that I mean just, just deflating. You just, no, no zeal, no enthusiasm. How do you characterize your Christian life? That tells you if you really believe. Because when you really believe and you have a passion for Him, I suggest to you, you will also know His power in your life. I suggest to you also that your life will be refreshed. His mercies are new every morning, we're told. Your life will be invigorated, you will have power. And your life will be inviting. Other people will look and other people will wonder. Other people will marvel and they will want to know what is it about your life that is so refreshing and so invigorating. Why do you have this hope? Constantly. Or is your life the other? But it's all based on, I would suggest, it's all based on what? It's based on an understanding and a belief a profound belief in the finished work of Jesus Christ symbolized by the fact that He is seated. I can't add anything to it. I come with empty hands of faith, trusting Him. You say, well, shouldn't we, shouldn't we minister? Don't we serve? Don't we do things? Yes, but it ought to come out of a motivation of, a, of, of love and a life that is energized by Him, not based on our own need to perform. We are performers, aren't we? We're all actors, aren't we? We're all (laughs) hypocrites. In one measure or another. Boy, the truth of this, the finished work of Jesus, should have been absolutely exhilarating to these Hebrews. They should have said, yes, yes, one final sacrifice. We don't have to go to the temple anymore. It should be exhilarating to us. No more condemnation. No more living in fear. And no more heaping guilt. Imagine a final sacrifice, a final work, a finished work, so that our high priest could sit down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, let me just, let me tell you something. I discovered this this week. I I get lots of letters and mail, and I'm on everybody in the world's mailing list. And I get all these advertisements and people want this, that, and the other thing and want me to review this and that and so forth. And most pastors get this stuff. I got a, I got a, uh, I got a, a review, um, some review material for the latest, newest English translation of the New Testament. And I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. Went, uh, who's translating? And so I, I read the material. It is the politically correct Bible. I promise you, there is now a politically correct Bible. Everything in that Bible that could be remotely construed as being politically incorrect in our society today has been changed. It's totally subjective. It is amazing. One of the things that they changed, and this will blow your mind, was this concept of sitting at the right hand of God. They took out right hand. And the reason they took out right hand is because they did not want to offend left-handed people. <laughs> I pro- I'm not joking. I pro- this is the truth. This is, how absurd, this is how absurd our culture is getting. This is what happens when people turn from God. Their thinking becomes futile, Paul says in Romans 1. Jesus is no longer sitting at the right hand of God. You say, what did he replace it with? The hand of might. Now the hand of might, that, I mean, that, that, I mean, I understand what they're saying. I understand they're trying to carry the principle through. If you, if you understand the right hand of a sovereign, of a, of a sovereign king, of a sovereign leader, meant power, it meant exaltation, it meant honor. That was very clear in the ancient Near East. These Jews understood that. But hand of might, it, it kind of loses something. But the right hand speaks powerfully. The idea of the right hand, sitting, Jesus sitting at the right hand also, not only from their culture and their understanding of, of uh, sitting at the right hand of a sovereign leader, also would remind them of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin remember was the Jewish ruling council, a council of 70 elders that ruled the civil and religious life of Israel. They were they were kind of like the Supreme Court, but they were more than the Supreme Court. Whenever they would sit in judgment, there would be a presiding judge, a presiding elder when the when they, when the council was sitting, the presiding elder on either side of the presiding judge Was a scribe or a secretary The scribe on the left hand side of the presiding judge Would write all the condemnations But the scribe sitting on the right hand side The right hand side Would write all the acquittals So here he's saying Jesus, our great high priest Is sitting at the right hand side of the presiding judge of all men. Writing acquittals, as it were. So here he is in the place of power, authority, exaltation, honor, and also that seat is the seat of mercy and intercession. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the majesty In heaven, writing, as it were, acquittals for his own. It's for you and I. Not guilty. Not guilty. No condemnation. No condemnation. No condemnation. No condemnation. Oh my! Isn't that great? Absolutely. And even more. Even more amazing, think about this for a minute with me. Let's press a little bit further. Even more amazing than the fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven is the fact that one day you and I will be invited to sit there also. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Listen to Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Man, if there isn't nothing that thrills your heart, listen to this. Listen to what's waiting for us. To him who overcomes. See, the writer of the Hebrews is challenging his, his congregation. Come on, come on, overcome. Don't fall back. Keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. Pay the price, whatever it is. Keep coming. To him who overcomes, I, he says, will give the right to sit with me on my throne. just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Oh, hallelujah. Nobody has this heritage but you and I. Christians. Who are pressing on. Committed to Christ. No matter what. He's at the right hand. There's a beautiful and yet at the same time, tragic account in the book of Acts. It's in chapter 7 of the book of Acts. You remember a young man by the name of Stephen was appointed a deacon. He was a Jew, but he had a Greek background, so he's called a Hellenistic Jew as opposed to a Jew from Jerusalem. He's ministering, and he finds himself in front of the Sanhedrin. And he powerfully preaches the gospel to the Sanhedrin. Now, as a result... He's condemned for blasphemy, and he's going to be stoned to death. Chapter 7, verse 55, records that as Stephen is being dragged out of the council chambers, he looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. What? No, sitting. Sitting. Wait a minute. The writer of the Hebrews says he's sitting. Is he sitting or is he standing? What's the deal? Which is he doing? Is he sitting or is he standing? I'm going to suggest to you this. As far as redemption is concerned, Jesus is seated. As far as redemption is concerned, he is seated. The picture, the statement, the concept of being seated, pictures, it's a metaphor for finished work. He's seated. As far as redemption is concerned, he rests from the finished work of redemption. That's why we can say he's seated. But, when one of his precious ones falls into trouble, he stands up. How do you know he stands up? Because Stephen sees him standing up. And Stephen's in big time trouble. When one who is precious to you is in trouble, you're sitting down, one of your precious ones gets in trouble, what do you do? Stay sitting? You stand up. You move to a position of action. That's exactly what Jesus does. He stands up and he takes the position of action. All of his power, all of his energy, all of his resources, then are immediately activated in behalf of his beloved. <laughs> Think about that. You say, "Yeah, but what about me? I've been in trouble. He hasn't rescued me." Ah. No, maybe not. Did he rescue Stephen? No, he didn't rescue Stephen. But I want to suggest to you that he gave Stephen the grace to endure. How do we know that? Because Stephen, instead of cursing his persecutors, was able to bless them. He prayed for those people who were stoning him. You can't do that but by the grace of God no matter how tight your situation, no matter how devastating your circumstances, you've got to know, you've got to believe with all your heart that Jesus is standing to supply you with the resources and the grace, if not to get out of it, to weather it. The Apostle Paul understood that, didn't he? At the end of Second Corinthians, he said, A messenger of Satan was given him a thorn in his flesh to keep him humble. Three times, says God, get rid of this. God's response was what? My grace is sufficient. I will empower you, I will enable you to function even with this trial. Though He doesn't rescue you, He will give you grace. All of His power is activated on your behalf. He stands. He says, my power, my power, my power becomes evident in your weakness. You need me. And I know you need me. I want you to know you need me. My power is made evident in your weakness. So Paul says, therefore, I glorify, I glory in my what? My weaknesses. He stands. The fact that Jesus Christ in all his glory and all his exaltation in heaven is still preoccupied with ministering to us is an awesome, wonderful, and humbling reality. He's preoccupied with ministering to us. When he was here, what did he do? He said, I came to what? Serve or be served? Came to serve. In heaven, what's he doing? He's still serving. How's he serving? He's serving by meeting our needs. He's serving by interceding for us. He's serving by continually writing acquittals to us. His ministry is to serve. In all of his glory. He's always serving. He did not receive His majesty as something to be selfishly enjoyed. To, in isolation, be self-absorbed, if you will. But rather, He received His majesty, He received all His glory, that He might share it. And that he might use it to minister to us. Jesus. He is our great high priest. It's in Jesus Christ that his majesty and his service are perfectly united. Perfectly. Now, question. Do you trust Jesus? Don't answer too quickly. Don't answer too quickly. Write it down. Do I really trust Jesus? Do I really trust Him? Am I really willing to put my life and my security into His hands? Really? How much control do I still want? If I really trust Him, then I must be willing to take Him at His word, what He says, if you're going to follow Me, if you're going to be My disciple, in other words, if you're going to trust Me, you must first deny yourself. Because you cannot follow Me unless you do that. You must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Me every day. It's a daily dying yourself. It's a daily dying to yourself. It's a daily dying. It's a daily saying, I'm not the issue. I'm not the issue. I'm not the issue. I'll not focus on me. I'll not focus on what I want. I rather focus on what he wants. That's what it is. He sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Amen. Lord, thank you. Thank you again for your grace to us. Thank you for your constant care. Thank you for your constant provision. Thank you for your constant discipline in our life. Lord, how we need to be reminded how we need each other to remind ourselves of these very real and wonderful and yet fundamental truths. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we are distracted. We allow ourselves to be distracted. We allow ourselves to drift away Thank you that we can come week after week after week. Thank you that we can assemble together. Thank you that we can be reminded to come back. Readjust our perspective and glorify you. I love you today, Lord. I thank you for your grace to me in my life. And I praise your name amen. Let's stand and sing one more song. And let's sing this morning with passion before we dismiss.
1: It's exalted. So exalt, lift up all earth, the